Welcome to Thursday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. And we've only got one week to go until the NFL draft, so things are getting real exciting. I'm Paul Tatino, along with Super Bowl champion Jeff Fiegels, as we take you through the next hour or so and talk about the Giants and their draft prospects and some real interesting players who would be available for them. Uh, Boise State and Houston, the schools that we will be examining this afternoon. Jeff, always good to talk to you. Hope everything's well. Doing good, Paul. Uh, yeah, just getting. We are. It seems like we've hit every university in the nation, right? And uh, <laughs> but listen, we're we're a week away. It's getting exciting. Um, a little bit of maneuvering going on, as you can tell. A lot of these GMs at this time of the year start putting up these what we call smoke screens and mm-hmm. trying to get guys to believe that they're going to take this guy or they're not going to take this guy. So it's all about what you believe. But I think the bottom line, Paul, when it comes down to this draft and you know, it's great to talk about all the guys, and you know, the first and second round to me are pretty easy because they're they're you got you know you got your top guys in the first two rounds, and I think where you make hay is in the third, fourth, and fifth round trying to find those guys that can be really impactful for your team, and not many people really know about them, and you hit a home run with one or two of them, that would be really good. But um, so you know, like I said, these these general managers right now are talking to people, and they're just putting putting thoughts in everybody's heads because they just want to kind of understand what other people are doing or maybe not doing. So it's interesting, but it's all good. Well, I think everybody's looking forward to it, Jeff. And so let's kick off today's prospect previews, and we will start with Boise State and B.J. Reigns of the Idaho Press. Now, left tackle Ezra Cleveland is a guy who got a lot of ink at the Combine in Indianapolis because of his athleticism. And now people are saying not only could it be a very high second-round pick, but there's even an outside chance he could sneak into the bottom of the first round. BJ, what do you have to tell us about Cleveland? Yeah, he's been uh, here in Boise. It's not a surprise. Uh, folks have seen him as a guy that could leave early and go to the draft and be a high-round pick for a couple of years. I mean, he's started every, every game since his redshirt freshman year. He came right in as a redshirt freshman and I think played every play his first year uh, at left tackle. And that's pretty rare in itself to be a redshirt freshman and just, you know, get this job of protecting a NFL quarterback and play left tackle at Boise State, which is what he did for, for Brett Rippon, who went on to uh, the practice squad quarterback now for the Broncos. So he, uh, he's been a heck of a player. His athleticism, some of the things that he's done, uh, it didn't surprise me at all, his numbers at the combine. And talking to some agents and stuff that were looking at him, you know, even going back to last summer, saying this is a guy that if he plays well this year, he could be a he could be a high round guy. And so, uh, not surprised at all. He's a heck of a player. He's pretty durable. He he played with a foot injury for part of last season. It caused him to miss one game, I think. But other than that, he kind of played through it. And uh, late in the season, when he got healthy, the last three or four games, he put on the tape, especially in that game against uh, Washington in the bowl game. Uh, he he was dominant uh, the last couple of games. And so he's he's a you know, freak athletic guy, and he's still a young guy, and, and so uh, not surprising at all. And I think that uh, whatever team gets him, he's going to have a chance to be a, you know, long-time starter in the NFL. Uh, BJ, you know, Paul had mentioned how he just skyrocketed, um, you know, up the draft board because of what he did at the Combine. I think the measurables uh, speak for themselves, and I think, you know, being Boise State, I think, you know, sometimes they don't get as much recognition as all the other big schools. But one of the things that, that I find interesting about these, the draft and, and now that we're doing these virtual interviews, I've been reading that he's been very impressive in his interviews. Tell me a little bit about his uh, character and his demeanor, his, um, you know, his attitude, kind of his uh, you know, playing acumen, stuff like that about him. Well, you're going to find that from pretty much any offensive player at Boise State. They run a very complex offensive system, a lot of shifts and motions and pre-snap movements and a lot of things that uh, their offense is very complex. And so you have to be a very smart football player to play offensive Boise State. And so I know it's a little different from an offensive line perspective. You don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff. But, uh, no, he's a very smart guy. He's a very quiet guy. He's not a guy that uh, will come out and say a lot. He's not going to be a guy you have to worry about getting in trouble. Um, he, he just kind of shows up and, and does his work. And so uh, he's, you know, they, they tell us he's more of a leader on the field, and that he's more vocal when he's with his friends and stuff like that. But with the media and kind of what we see is he's just a, a quiet guy that, uh, you know, for the most part gives you the standard uh, answer that I'm just trying to help the team. And, um, you know, maybe not the, the, the perfect guy for the media interview, but he uh, just kind of shows up and, and gets it done. And you talk about his 
athleticism and some of that stuff. There was a game this year against Utah State where they actually gave him a carry uh, on a tackle end-around play from the three-yard line, and he should have got in and scored a touchdown, but he kind of took a bad angle, and a guy, uh, linebacker, swept his legs and tackled him, I think, at the one-yard line. But, uh, you know, to, to see a 300-plus kind of left tackle uh, get a carry on an end around and be charging for the corner of the end zone. It was pretty impressive to see, and he almost got in. And so uh, I, I think he's, uh, like I said, he's just a quiet guy that shows up and does his work. But the, when you talk to the offensive line coach, Brad Bedell, and some of these guys, the thing that they say is his athleticism makes up for the rare times he makes a mistake. He may make a mistake or get beat, but he has the athleticism to rebound and recover and get back in his position. And you talk about, oh, you know, Boise State, maybe they don't get the recognition that they deserve uh, when you're mentioning that. Just look in the NFL right now, players that are from Boise State. I know Ryan Clady just retired, but Ryan Clady was a longtime you know, Pro Bowl left tackle from Boise State. The current starting left tackle for the Chicago Bears, Charles Leno Jr., uh, was, at, uh, was out of Boise State. Um, they've got a, a history with some linemen and left tackles in particular uh, playing in the NFL. And everybody knows what Leighton Vanderesh did down in Dallas, uh, the linebacker from Boise State. I mean, they, they've got... You know, there's a lot of rosters where you can go find a, a guy uh, from Boise State. I mean, the Giants know Darian Thompson. They had Dante Dion on the practice squad there as well. So um, they, they've had, a, you know, Boise State just puts out blue-collar, tough, hard-nosed guys that are going to, you know, going to prove people wrong and surprise people. And they play with that chip on their shoulder. And Ezra Cleveland is a guy that I would certainly expect to come in and push for an immediate starting job wherever he goes. Well, BJ, you talk about his smarts and his attitude, and there's no question, his athleticism and his ability to be a technician are going to serve him very well in the NFL. But at 6'6", 310, has there been much talk about when he gets to the pros, how much more power and bulk he may have to add on to? Because uh, the guys are a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger in the National Football League. And, and is there an anticipation that he will be able to add that aspect to his game? Yeah, I was thinking that he could add, uh, you know, I think his combine reps on the bench weren't terrible. But he had told me that he actually had done better in training. Uh, but there was a lot going on before. And he didn't get enough time to really get ready and warm up and prepare. And he wasn't making excuses, but he was disappointed in himself. Uh, in terms of the bench press, because he thought he could have done better at the combine than he did, and he had done better in training. Um, but yeah, I mean, his, his speed is something that's really helped him. As I mentioned, you know, I think his his uh, forty yard uh, dash time is pretty impressive. Uh, you know, I think that uh, you know he, he's a guy that probably could add ten to fifteen pounds and probably not have an impact on too much. But his explosiveness and some of his athleticism and agility uh, is helped probably by you know his his size. And so. Uh, there hasn't been a ton of talk of that, at least here in Boise. I've talked to his agent, Ron Slavin, a couple of times. and I think they feel like, you know, he could add some weight and probably be fine. But, um, you know, there's also a give and take where you don't want to add too much and have it impact some of the other stuff that he, that he does so well. BJ, quickly, from the talk that, that's been going on around campus, does it look like he will sneak into the bottom of the first round? Certainly the NFL circles and the mocks seem to think that's possible. Or is it more likely he's there if the Giants should want to you know, think about him at number 36? Well, it's funny. I know we're going to talk about Curtis Weaver, I assume, uh, here pretty soon. And you know, for, for all season and for, you know, up until even like a couple weeks ago, everyone just assumed that Curtis Weaver was going to be the one that was picked first. And it's been really interesting to see Curtis Weaver slide a little bit and see Ezra Cleveland rise. And now it's a consensus, you know, here in Boise from most people that uh, Ezra Cleveland will go first. And not many people would have probably predicted that at the beginning of the season. And so um, it just depends on the team and the fit. I think there's a chance that he could go anywhere from 25 to 32. But if I was a betting man, you'd probably take the the first five to ten picks for the second round. And, again, as you guys mentioned, there's just the Boise State stigma. It's not, you know, Alabama or LSU or whatever. I mean, that would if he was coming out of Alabama, he'd you know, maybe be a top ten pick. I mean, so it's part of it's the school, part of it's uh, you know a lot of things. But uh, I, I think that if you probably had to guess, it's probably early second round. But if there's a team like this, I've seen the Titans, I've seen the Browns. There's some teams kind of with late first round picks that uh, potentially um, you know could could need a left tackle, and he's certainly a guy that uh, I think would be there. So I either one wouldn't surprise me. But if I you know, when I'm sitting there on draft night getting ready to write my stories, uh, the, the more likely scenario is probably him and Weaver both going early on day two. Well, let's just go there then. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Curtis Weaver. Uh, obviously a guy that can, an edge rusher that can get get to the quarterback, uh, had his best year as far as sack performance in 2019. Uh, pretty much stayed healthy the whole year, played all 14 games. Uh, obviously that one game included in the bowl game. Tell us a little bit about Curtis and um, – 
obviously, like you had said, this is a guy that was ranked a little bit above Ezra Cleveland, and now he's kind of taken a little backseat, and why do you think his stock has dropped a little bit? Well, you know how it is this time of year. Everyone tries to nitpick and tries to find things that are wrong with guys, and um, you know, the, the things that I keep hearing is you look, you know, and seven of his stats, seven of his stats came in two games against, you know, poor competition. I think he had four sacks in a game against Portland State, and a lot of people say, okay, that's an FCS team, and that's, you know, one-third of his sacks for the season or whatever in one game, and so I've seen some people point to that. Uh, but this guy was taking on double and triple teams all season long. He's a prototypical NFL pass rusher, and I, you know, he, he had the most sacks in the nation, I believe, the last two years when he, when he had him up. Was the only, you know, uh, edge rusher or only guy in the country, I believe, with 10 plus sacks in each of the seasons. Going back to his redshirt freshman season, he's been productive every single time he's stepped on the field for Boise State the last three years. And this was a guy that really changed his body around. He lost like 20, 30 pounds and when he got to Boise State and they really kind of got him going. And everything you hear from him is he's just kind of a freak of nature athletically. He can do some things with his hips and uh, some things off the edge. And you mentioned him being healthy all season. He played in every game, but he actually wasn't healthy all year. He had a really, really bad ankle injury against Air Force. And he was wearing a boot all week at practice, and nobody thought he was going to play, but he somehow played the next game. Um, and then later in the season, I think he either hurt the other ankle or hurt it again. And so he actually did have to uh, – play through some stuff. So he's a durable guy, but he did have a couple of ankle injuries that are ankle sprains, I guess. They weren't anything, you know, severe or chronic. He just sprained his ankle and um, was able to play through that. But uh, he's, a, he's a, you know, production. You know, when I talked to him, I asked him, what do you think about people that kind of say some of those negatives? And he said, production is production. It doesn't matter when you get it. Production is production. The numbers speak for themselves. Uh, and the thing with him is he's very charismatic. He, he's a media, you know, media member's dream. He's great with the media. He has funny quips and funny lines and always is good for the one-liners to help with you with your story or your sound bites and, and uh, loves doing that kind of stuff. So he, he is much more a uh, face of the pro, you know, face of the team type guy than a, than an Ezra Cleveland. Ezra Cleveland likes to kind of just let his play do the talking. He's kind of a quiet, typical offensive lineman. Uh, you'll see Curtis Weaver out there. He's got the hair. He's got the earrings. He's joking around, laughing. You know, he's a, he's a, you know, got a great personality that I think if he would have done more of the interviews and the in-person dinners with teams and visits and stuff, uh, that certainly would have helped a guy like Curtis Weaver probably move up the list because teams would fall in love with him when they get to know him. And so I think from that standpoint, um, that's probably hurting him some. At all, The only way teams are getting to know him is through a FaceTime or a Zoom video chat. And so that may be one of the reasons you're seeing him slide a little bit. You know, BJ, I think there's kind of like an A button and a B button for him because you mentioned the weight fluctuation. I read when he came to Boise State, he was about 290. He's 6'2", 265 now, at least according to the numbers that I've seen. So now if somebody wanted him to bulk up maybe 10 or 15 pounds and go back to his former weight, I think he might be a 4'3 defensive end. But if they like him at the lighter weight... Uh, maybe he's better off as a 3-4 stand-up outside linebacker, although he didn't seem to show a lot of speed, and, and in terms of you know being able to handle the stand-up responsibilities, maybe he's better off uh, going down you know to the ground, because I know his strength is power. He's a power guy, and he's a technician, so he's not going to get fancy. He's just going to come at you. Yeah, and, and you know, the thing is, the funny thing is that the position he played at Boise State is actually called the stud position. It's a stand-up defensive end. It's actually kind of a hybrid outside linebacker slash defensive lineman. Um, and so he, he does not have his hand in the ground. He's basically an outside linebacker that rushes the passer. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that talking to his agent is he thinks he had more success even drop, you know, dropping the weight, going at the lower weight, being more of just a straight pass rusher on the outside. Um, I guess a team can do whatever they want with him. I haven't seen him add the weight to, to, to say is that you know, a better option for him. It certainly could be. But Boise State kind of knew from the start when they brought him in, you know, they saw his ability in terms of this, this position they have called the stud. So it was the plan all along was for him to, to drop the weight, transform his body. And at one point he lost like, you know, 40 pounds or 45 pounds to get down to like 250 uh, early in his Boise State career. But I think the 260, 265 range is where he has the most success. And so I could see either one being a possibility, but I think if for, in terms of him making more of an immediate impact in the, in the, in the league, I would think uh, just strictly focusing on pass rushing from the outside probably, at least initially, is a better option for him.
we'll go to the other side of the football um, and talk a little bit about wide receiver John Hightower, another guy that we have on our list. Um, just yep. you know, doing my little research on him, what's impressive about this guy is that he's quite the track star. Uh, he's got a lot of speed, a lot of agility. Heck, he had a six foot eight inch uh, high jump. That's pretty impressive to me. That tells me he can go up and get some of those contested balls. Talk to us a little bit about John Hightower, BJ. Yeah, he's going to probably be a fourth or fifth round pick. He's going to be a solid mid mid round pick for somebody. Uh, elite speed, elite speed. He's a guy that uh, anybody you talk to at Boise State, they just say he's the fastest guy on the field they've ever seen. Because there's there's the straight, you know, forty time numbers, and then they're doing it in pads, doing it, you know, when you outrun a, a DB on the field. And he traditionally, uh, you know, was just that guy that provided him, you know, just an, an insane amount of speed. He was a kick returner. Uh, he, he was, you know, very good, very good kick returner as well, and he's got the size too, and he can go up and get ball. He's got good hands, but he was, you know, he was the deep threat. He was a guy that they would uh, just just throw it up deep to, and he would outrun the DB and go make a play. And if you look at his average, you know, yards per catch over his time at Boise State, they were some of the best in school history, and they would give it to him on end arounds. You know, he was a guy that they just wanted to get a ball in his hands. Uh, they wanted to get the ball in his hands and space as much as as uh, much as possible, and so he would get a number of end arounds and things like that. And um, they would try to just get him the ball as much as they could. He even threw a couple passes, I believe, on trick plays. He's actually a former high school quarterback. Uh, he went to junior college uh, for two years and then came to Boise State and really transformed into a uh, elite receiver. I don't know. I don't know if you guys remember Cedric Wilson. He's a was a sixth round pick by the Cowboys a couple years ago, and now he's on the practice squad battle on injuries, but he was from Boise State, a JUCO guy, and right when he left, they brought in John Hightower with the same kind of thing, a JUCO guy coming in with NFL-type speed, and John Hightower was, you know, did more in his two years here than uh, a lot of people uh, have done in two years at Boise State. And very impressive guy. He's a very smart guy. Um, you know, off the field fact about him is he's just uh, insanely interested in, in cars, and he would have, uh, he knows how to, like, well, fix a car if it breaks down. His teammates would you know, call him if they had some engine problem. He'd come over and fix their car for him. And he just, he, you know, everyone says he loves two things, cars and football. And he just would uh, put his time towards that. And he's, uh, you know, like I said, he, he's he's a guy that if you get the ball in his hands, he makes things happen. Great hands to go up and, and uh, take the ball away from people. And I, I assume he'll be a fourth, fifth, sixth round pick, kind of a mid to late round pick that, will have a chance to immediately come in and, and compete for playing time for NFL teams. Did he play many uh, uh, special teams? Because it sounds to me like a guy that would be a good, like, obviously he's a returner, but on the flip side of it, covering kicks, covering punts, maybe a gunner, a guy that can get down there um, and make some tackles, things like that. I don't think he did much of that just because of how valuable he was as a kick returner and a okay. wide receiver. They didn't, sure. yeah. they didn't, sure. especially his senior year, you know, he was one of their main offensive threats. They didn't want to... Uh, you know, risk some sort of injury when, you, when you're going down on a play where you're maybe not going to be a huge factor. But uh, he certainly, again, is a, a guy that you talk to people and they just see how smart he is as a football player. And it sounds redundant, but uh, it'd be re- very rare to find a Boise State player that was not a, a smart football player. And so you talk to some of the coaches and they say how smart he is, it wouldn't shock me at all for him to easily be able to learn and do whatever he would need to do to, to make an impact on special teams if that's what it meant for him to get on the field. Well, BJ, it certainly seems like there's a lot of value there, and certainly he's a speed burner. So I guess the obvious question is, why then would he be ranked so low on a number of these mocks? Is it that he didn't go up against enough of press coverage? Uh, is is it physicality? I see it 6'1", 189. Perhaps he's a bit wiry. I confess I did not see him on tape. Yeah, I think part of it is, again, the Boise State stigma. Sometimes just their offense lends to putting up big numbers and that maybe people say, okay, well, he did it at Boise State. Uh, it's not the same as doing it somewhere else. Um, maybe the Mike Leach quarterback, you know, issue sometimes. Um, but, uh, again, I, you know, maybe it's the fact that he played two years at JUCO before he came to Boise State, so not as many people uh, knew about him. But, um, I, I, again, I, I haven't watched the tape of every wide receiver on there, but he is certainly a guy that I would want on my team, especially at that part of the draft. Uh, I think he's got a lot of value. Like I said, I think he's you know, I think he's been, he was working at times on becoming more than just the, the deep threat. I mean, they, he would just run post. They would just, you know, throw it up 40 yards to him his first year here. Last year he tried to focus on becoming a more complete receiver, running more uh, other types of routes and things like that. And like I said, they gave him the ball in other ways. Um, but he was a guy that stayed healthy for the most part and was able to put up the numbers he did. So I, I, I'm not a scout. I, I wouldn't be able to say exactly why other receivers were ranked ahead of him. But I think just playing in the Mountain West, 
you guys got to remember, most of these Boise State games don't start till like 10 p.m. on the East Coast. And so a lot of uh, people just don't see a lot of Boise State games. They're starting at 8.30 Mountain Time on ESPN2 or whatever, and it's just not they're not the same as if they're playing in the afternoon or earlier in the evening. So I do think it's harder for them to get some of the recognition that, that these players deserve just because they're not household names. They're not on uh, primetime TV a lot. And so the scouts that dive in and do the research and do the stats, uh, maybe they say the competition isn't as great, you know, in the Mountain West Conference in terms of putting up, you know, a thousand yard season in the SMC. So I could see that being part of the, part of the negative too. But, um, you know, he, he's done it against good teams and he's had success. And I, I you know, Again, a lot has to fall his way. I agree with you. Maybe he could add a little bit to his frame. But, again, it's, you know you don't want to take that speed out of him. But I, I certainly think he's a guy that wouldn't surprise me at all. I know he was making a lot of plays in the, the Shrine game or whichever postseason game he went to. Uh, he's one of the top players there. So it, it, it won't surprise me at all if, if we have training camp and all this and we look up in mid-August and there's some article with some team saying, oh, fifth-round pick John Hightower is making an early push for us you know, the uh, most impressive player in camp or something. It, it wouldn't surprise me one bit. So, uh, John Molchan, I think that's, is it Molchan or Molchan? Um, Molchan, yeah. Eight, yeah, Molchan. Uh, big guy, 6'5", 309 pounds. Uh, plays multiple positions, I can see, but mostly at left guard and interior offensive lineman. Talk a little bit about him. Um, what is, I, I, I think we have him probably as a, street, as a free agent, most likely. Um, but give us a little bit of an idea of this guy. Yeah, I think it wouldn't shock me, actually, if he's a sixth or seventh round pick. I think he's got a, a chance to be drafted. Uh, you know, he was the left guard. Uh, he actually had to play those other positions because some other guys got hurt. His versatility is, is what his versatility is what makes him attractive. He spent the only position that he did not play was center, but he's actually uh, marketing himself to NFL teams as a potential center also. Um, and has been spending a lot of work at center uh, since the season ended. Uh, you know, he was the left guard, and he had Ezra Cleveland as the left tackle. So Boise State pretty much just did what they wanted when they ran the ball to the left side. Um, and, you know, he, he was a guy that uh, was a multi-year starter, multi-year. For, you know, he, the last two years was first team all-conference. Uh, again, he was a team captain the last couple of years, so very smart, very, uh, you know, he's from Las Vegas, but he was a guy that the players looked up to. Very smart football player, was, as I mentioned, a team captain, uh, the spokesman for the team a lot of times in terms of talking to the media and things like that. Um, so, no, I, I think he's a guy that uh, definitely has a, a role somewhere on an NFL team. He can play tackle, he can play guard. There was, uh, I think, three of the first four games of the season, he started at three different spots along the line to uh, fill in where other guys got hurt. and They trusted him more moving to the other spot than, than bringing in a backup at the other spot. And so um, you know, he's a, a versatile, quality guy that, again, won't cause you any problems in the locker room. Good good guy, smart guy. Um, I, I would actually expect him to probably, you know, I would think there's no reason why he can't be a sixth or seventh round pick. It would probably be disappointing if he becomes a, a non-drafted guy. But uh, if he does, I think he'd be a very attractive, very you know, good value for a non-drafted free agent for him. And, uh, you know, I think that they have a couple guys like that. David Moa is a defensive lineman that had a couple big seasons before getting hurt. He was a six-year guy that has a chance to get into a camp. Chase Atata, defensive end, I think, has a chance to get into a camp. So they've got some guys that, uh, you know, routinely, you know, they put guys in the league, and they've got a lot of guys. And I think Bolshon along that line certainly is a guy that's going to deserve serious consideration for a draft pick or at least a free agent deal. I think he would have a chance to to make a club as a, a versatile backup lineman. BJ, a lot has been said because of the crazy circumstances of this offseason. It's going to be very important for the type of college coaching that a lot of these prospects got because the better the coaching was and the more pro-ready those guys are coming into the NFL, the quicker they're going to be able to, to put something on the field because they're not going to have a lot of time with their NFL teams. Is that something? It sounds like the way you've described these Boise State prospects in terms of their technique, in terms of their smarts, in terms of their attitude, it sounds like they're going to have a little bit of a foot up on some of the other players who may be coming out. Yeah, you know, I'm not from Boise. I'm from St. Louis, actually, and I just moved out here randomly for the job. And so when I moved out here about six years ago, and you just, you, you, you from afar, you hear about the Statue of Liberty play and the blue turf and all the undefeated seasons and Kellen Moore and all this. But when you actually get out here and talk to the coaches and you see it, you know, practice and you see the games and travel with the team and you, you know, you just see how this works. And you, you, every year you get to this time of year when the draft's coming up and you hear, you know, stuff from scouts and from teams about why they like players. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to, 
you know, I have no affiliation with Boise State. I'm not trying to hype up the program or make it seem like these guys are all first-round picks, but the thing that you continue to hear every year is, is just that, is how they prepare players for the next level. And, and there's, there's a long list of Boise State players, if you go down the list, that have had success uh, in the NFL. And, and uh, I think Leighton Van Der Esch with the Cowboys was a perfect example. He was a former walk-on from a high school with 19, 19 in the senior class in Salmon River, Idaho. And Boise State finds him, brings him in, molds him, and he goes on and is you know one of the top rookies in the NFL his first year. So I think Boise State just does that. You know, Jay Ajayi, the running back, uh, you know, uh, was a, another guy that uh, was a late round pick and had some success, you know, for a couple of years in the NFL. So they just they have these guys ready. I don't know if it's the system. I don't know if it's the um, just the culture. These guys all come in with chips on their shoulder. They're all guys that feel like they. Um, could have been, you know, Pac-12, you know, bigger power offer schools, and they get guys that are maybe a little undersized, a little under-recruited, and they just they, they turn them in three, four, five years into guys that are, you know, ready to, to go on to the next level, and they, they keep that chip on their shoulder mentality with them through their pro career. And I've talked to guys in the NFL from Boise State, and they, they just stay that stick with them, that, that, that chip on their shoulder of wanting to prove people wrong, wanting to show that Boise State is a school that can have success it works for them. So guys uh, come in and have success, and I think it's just the culture that Brian Harson has built there. He's an you know, offensive coach, and uh, that certainly helps from the offensive standpoint. But they, you know, they continue to do it year after year. Guys that continue to be fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round picks continue to find ways to have success and stick in the NFL. And you go look at the NFL rosters. There's like you know, last year there was like 19 players on active rosters from Boise State. You wouldn't you wouldn't think that. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy to think about and. Um, you know, think, think about like just I keep mentioning the Cowboys, but the Cowboys have more players on the roster from Boise State than any other program in the country. And how crazy is that that they choose to keep coming back to Boise State because it works, and they've found a system that works, and they draft a guy or two from Boise State every year. So um, it, it works, and teams are doing it. And I think Boise State has certainly proven that their guys are going to go into these, go in ready to prove themselves and ready to play at the next level. And I think that's going to be no different with the, the four or five guys this year. That is B.J. Raines from the Idaho Press discussing Boise State's NFL draft prospects. But now we switch gears and we look at the Houston Cougars. Now they have one guy in particular of tremendous interest. That is left tackle Josh Jones. And we bring in Ted Pardee of the Houston Cougars radio network. And Jones has really moved up on draft boards over the course of the past few months. What is the primary reason for the surge? Well, it's because of his frame to start with, Paul. I mean, when you look at this young man who is 6'7", 310 pounds, and and when you look over the course of his, really over the past five years, what he has done to to become a 310-pound left tackle, it's it's quite amazing. You know, you really have to go back to his freshman year when when he arrived, and and, uh, Houston had a coach, Tom Herman, at the time, who was kind of a... Uh, a young uh, trailblazer at the time doing different things. He was the guy that was able to convince Josh to come to Houston. He decommitted from Oklahoma State, a Power 5 school, to come to, you know, a Group 5 school. That was a big deal. But then he came in at 235 pounds. So so he basically was, uh, you know, undersized, if you will. He was a basketball player in, in high school. He loves the sport of basketball. So he's a very athletic, very gifted football player. Uh, he's more than just a big body. I mean, those are the type of guys you want to have, uh, you know, blocking for you on that blind side. Um, very athletic. One thing that I've noticed about him, and I think this is probably because he's a basketball player, but very quick out of his stance. And I think that's important if once he gets to the next level. Um, and, and obviously, he's got a tremendous upside. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, how he is off the field. You know, it's a big deal these days if he's going to go in the first round, which most people have him going, um, and they're going to hand him a bunch of money. They want to make sure that their investment is good. Talk a little bit about his character and the type of person he is. Yeah, you know, Josh, he, he grew up in, in uh, so southwest Houston uh, in the suburbs there, a, a great community, you know, Fort Bend County. It's a, it's a real uh, a, a fantastic area for athletes, um, but it's, it's really sort of like Mayberry down there, guys. If you're an old guy like me, you remember what sort of the, the perfect ideal uh, <laughs> neighborhood to grow up. And, and he grew up in a wonderful area. He went to Bush High School down there, and, and uh, uh, it, you know the, the, the kids that come uh, from from where he where he grew up are good kids. He's he's a a unique person for sure because 
he's a guy that is a fantastic teammate. My my oldest son uh, is a football coach now, but he was in Josh's freshman class. He came in together. My son didn't redshirt, so he graduated last year. But but you know, my son is still in contact with Josh. He, he's like, man, what a great guy! And it couldn't happen for to a better guy to to really go from nothing to now where he's really like one of the top uh, tackle prospects and, and pass blocking t- uh, prospects that's in, in the college draft this year. I'm just looking at the stats here. And the impressive thing that I'm looking here is it's a three-year starter and over, uh, we're talking about over 2,200 snaps. He gave up five snaps. Uh, that's right. That is pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive for a guy. That's a lot of football and it's a lot of, a lot of experience too. Well, remember last year, so think about it, he, he did get dinged up. He had a he did have a little hamstring issue, so he only had nine starts in 2019. But really, he, there was only two quarterback pressures that he gave up in all of 2019. That's a pretty big deal when you consider you know Houston played against Washington State. You know they they played against some big time programs, and, and for him to lock down that that blind side, that backside is a big deal. What is it that he will have to improve upon, Ted? Because when people talk about the tackles in this draft, they usually list the top four guys and say, well, they could be top 10 and top 15. And then they say that Jones is the next best guy on that second level. So what is it that he's missing or that he has to polish up to become truly an elite guy? Well, I, I, you know, if you, if you look at just sort of the, the grades that uh, a lot of the scouts and a lot of the sort of the guys that watch this uh, from a professional point of view, what they're looking at, you know, obviously, great pass blocker, incredible wingspan. He's, you know, he's he's the perfect size for it at six seven and uh, three hundred and ten pounds. Uh, but but you know, the, the critique might be that he's not a great run blocker, right? That he's such a big frame, it's going to be harder for him to get low uh, to get leverage on on some of the defensive ends or defensive tackles that you see uh, playing football, like like a guy like Ed Oliver, who we I watched previously, another first round draft choice from Houston. You know, Ed's Ed's really only about six two. He's not as big as people think he is, and he's got that low center of gravity. And so when you play against guys like Aaron Donald or or you know Ed Oliver, you've got to get your pad level down. And, you know, it seems to me like I think that because the upside to him is this is athleticism. Um, you know, you don't want to label him as a freak, but I feel like you know he hasn't shown anything where somebody's going to be like, well, you know, the guy he he was a basketball player, but. I seem to think that he's had such a tremendous side to being in the National Football League because of his athleticism and possibility of, you know, putting on a couple, maybe a little less weight. I don't know. I mean, 310, 320, I, I'm fine with that for a left tackle that's athletic. Um, and good right. hands. Sounds, I mean, so to me, it just sounds like a wonderful guy, a wonderful person to be around. And somebody's going to get pretty lucky to get him and, and have a, you know, a good guy for a long time. A, a great teammate, a hard worker, you know, a guy that, that really sets the tone in the locker room. You know, he's a he's a humble guy too. I remember I remember talking to his mom. He gave up a sack back when he was a freshman. He started all all thirteen games as a, as a, a redshirt freshman. And uh, I'll never forget talking to his mom after one of the games, and, and he gave up a sack. It was like you know one of his three that he gave up that year or whatever. And and and, and his mom was like so devastated. And I was like, listen. One play is not going to make the difference uh, in, in a game. You know, they're playing 90 plus snaps a game these days. You know, you got to look at the big picture. And I said, Josh just needs to keep working hard because he's. Just, he, I knew back then that he was a special talent. Well, then, where was the the biggest jump in his development from the time he got to Houston, Ted, to the time he's now about to enter the NFL? I think he could look at 2016. I think 2016 was was a breakout year for for Josh. He. Remember, this is a guy that, that came in at about 235 as a, as a true freshman. So the strength coaches at Houston really had to put the weight on him, and they put good weight on him, right? Not the, He's not a big flabby guy. He's, he's a very fit guy. So when, in 2016, he started all 13 games. And remember, that was the year that Houston played Oklahoma in the first game of the season and beat it, just beat the tar out of him, right? So, you know, he immediately was tested in a fire against Oklahoma. Then they, they had to play against an incredible Lamar Jackson-led uh, Louisville team that was on fire at that time, and they beat Louisville as well. So, you know, if you look at the talent, the talent that he had to play against and as a young football player, I think he really matured in 2016, you know, 2017 and 2018 were good years as well. But, you know, he coming out of the gate, I, I look back to that season 
is, is really the, the defining moment for Josh and, and why he, once he took the starting position at left tackle, he never lost it. Well, the big thing that I see for his improvement has been in, his, in the run game. I feel like he's, he made a tremendous improvement from 2018 to 2019. Uh, we don't put a lot of credence in some of these uh, these ratings that we see because Paul and I don't think that they do a, a very good job in some of them. But the fact is, is that you know one of these scouting uh, reports that I have have his running run get grade go from really kind of mediocre a year before to outstanding last year. Right. Well, it's, I get, I, I, I'm with you on how these ratings work, right? Uh, uh, you know, two, two guys can look at one player and see two completely different things. What, what I do know is that Josh is a guy that, that is open to coaching, right? He's a, he is a, uh, he's really a coach's dream. The, the, the crazy thing, Josh had five offensive line coaches during his tenure at Houston. So, it, to consider where he is today, to consider that he's a, a potential, you know, first pick for for a team, and, and to consider that he's had probably five different coaching philosophies, you know, given to him over time. All he needs is a little bit of consistency and that professional level coaching. I know that coaching staff at, at, with the Giants, for instance, is a fantastic coaching group. And and you know, with with the, you know, you got Jason Garrett now leading the the uh, offense, and he's a brilliant mind. I think that with that type of coaching staff, they're going to be able to get the most out of a guy like Josh Jones, where he's really sort of had a, a you know, he hasn't had a lot of consistent coaching in his past. Well, that's great stuff from Ted Pardee of the Houston Cougars Radio Network talking about left tackle Josh Jones, a likely first-round pick in the NFL draft. You know, Jeff, it is exactly one week away, and I have to confess to you, I start to get goosebumps right about this time because the anticipation for the new players who are coming into the league is just overwhelming. At least it is for me because I've been such a diehard, blue-blooded NFL fan ever since I can remember. But most players that I have talked to over the years have said to me, uh, it's not that big a deal. A lot of guys don't even watch. What 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 do you feel as, as you get closer to the draft, and do you watch it? Well, I, of course I do. Um I think some of these guys, a reason why it's just they, they have no control over it, right? They going into the draft, they've done everything they can to to show teams what they what they're they're made of and what on tape, the combine. Of course, not a lot of pro days. Some people got them in, some didn't. But I think that a lot of guys just they just don't have any they just don't have any control over it. So there's why you know why stress over it. I think the league wants the guys that are going to be drafted, and I think there's maybe 50 or 60 guys that they've contacted to try to be ready for that virtual draft that's going to happen. But I think the other guys are just kind of like, hey, let the chips fall where they may. Um, but I believe this year in particular, Paul, that a lot of people will be watching this draft because there's been nothing else on live to watch. <laughs> <laughs> so all those uh, classic games that's uh, virtually on every sports network is not doing the trick for you? It's not. In fact, I don't think it's doing the trick for a lot of other people. This is starting to become like the Groundhog Day, right? I mean, it's every single day is different. Is not different. It's the same thing. But I think that this will probably be a monumental draft as far as viewership because, like I said, there hasn't been a lot live TV going on other than news. And you get tired of hearing the same thing over and over with the exception that this um, coronavirus is, is possibly getting better. Um, but we still have a long ways to go. But I think this will be a very well-watched program come these next three days next week well jeff there's something else i'd like to ask you about before we get to the previews on our nfl draft prospects and that Mm -hmm. is according to a washington post story that just came out about 24 hours or so ago the nfl's contingency plans for this 2020 season including shortened schedule and playing games in empty or partially empty stadiums now you and i both know the medical people, it's their advice that comes first. The league is going to be totally committed to doing things as safely as they possibly can, and they, they need to be commended for that. But the concept of having partially empty stadiums or empty stadiums, as someone who played in this league for so many years, uh, how does that sit with you? Well, I think it's, it's you got to do what you, you have a job. Everybody has a job, um, and people covering the league have a job, and players have a job. So if the league tells you and your employer tells you that you're going to do this, you certainly are going to do it. Now, I think there's a lot to talk about here because, you know, there's just – and you missed, you said contingencies, plural. So there, there certainly is many other plans that they have. I don't know how many they are, but 
but my take on it is it would be very strange. I think it would equate to me when I'll tell you this, when we used to go, um, when I was with the Arizona Cardinals, I think we did it with the Seahawks one year. Um, they have a, uh, a lot when we do a scrimmage, when we had our first scrimmage kind of, um, in training camp, right? We would go to the stadium and it was like a season ticket day where people can come into the stadium and look for season tickets that are available. They would put these balloons on the seats that were available for season tickets purchases. Well, that was kind of weird because you're in the stadium and you've got maybe 5,000 people coming through there. A lot of people just coming just to see the, the practice. Some people looking at seats, but it was weird because it's quiet. You know, 5,000 people don't make a lot of noise. Um, <laughs> but I can tell you this. Um, I feel like it would be just extremely weird to the sense that, you know, usually when I'm in an away game and I come in to kick, that's when the defense just stopped the opposing offense. It's loud. Um, it would just be like a practice, but it would be a real game and it counts. So it's going to be a little strange to, to get used to, but I think after a couple of games, guys would get used to it. Well, again, the NFL schedule supposedly will still be released by May 9th. And uh, the league is saying there will be some flexibility in it, uh, depending upon how the uh, advisories come down from the medics and the federal governments. Well, Jeff, we move on now to some Giants news. Uh, Joe Judge, the Giants head coach, had an opportunity to hold the media conference call yesterday. And, you know, some interesting things, certainly from from some of what he said, uh, not necessarily enlightening because he's not going to tell us. He may tell his dog who he's going to draft, but yeah. uh, or evidently what Dave, he does. Yeah. What, yeah, what Dave Gettleman is going to do, he's not going to tell us. What What did you glean from what he said? I, I I sense a little bit of excitement from him. I also sense a little bit of you know misery. Um, but you know, listen, football coaches are creatures of habit. They're just like football guys. You know, football players. Um, and at this time of the year, they're they're into everything. They're into their habits. They're into off-season workouts are, are going on. Um, they're into doing this and this. And obviously anything that's been going on in the world, like we've seen, has been crazy for these guys. But I, the excitement part of it, I believe, is because they're going to start to get in communication with the players, being able to get the coaches the opportunity to meet with each one of their individual guys um, collectively as a group and individually. So uh, these coaches still have to get to know these players, Paul. And I think that's important because we're at this stage of the game. It's very late. And, um, you know, the guys that have the free agents, the current players, these coaches would have had a chance to possibly get to know these guys by now because the offseason program would have started. Um, but I, I sense a little bit of excitement. And then, of course, then the draft. And, when, you know, he tells you he wasn't going to tell us anything about the draft, but how things are going to go and, and the communication that they've been having with their staff. Um, you know, and I, and I got a chance to talk to a couple of these coaches who have told me that they're excited about just getting in front of these players and getting to know them a little bit better, even if it is uh, remotely. All right, Jeff, let's get to some questions from the fans. They've been sending them in. We certainly yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, we really that. appreciate that, yeah. Either on Twitter at Giants Chat or going to the Giants website. And, again, uh, see what you can uh, you know, question us about it. We'll be very glad to answer. We start off from Luke wants to know, can the Giants trade for Viking safety Anthony Harris, who has a season left on his contract and reportedly is not necessarily the happiest camper these days? Mm, I, you know what? I, I just I feel like – so whenever we talk about you know trading, it's like okay, so what is somebody going to want for a player like that, and what do the Giants have that they were going to take? I don't see any player on this team that the Vikings really need. So what does that put there? What does that happen then? They're gonna they're going to want draft capital. Mm-hmm. So the Giants don't have enough of that to be able to go out and do things like that unless you start getting into next year. So I feel like there is enough. Uh, guys in the draft this year at the safety position. Delp is a guy from LSU that might be somebody that they could get. Remember this, Paul, and you know this, uh, the fact that, that when you're drafting these players, there's a rookie pool. So these guys aren't expensive. If you're going to go out and get another guy and have to assume uh, you know, whatever salary he's making, that's something you have to, to, to talk about too. Okay, question number two comes from Reginald. Does Daniel Jones have what it takes to become the next Giants legend? Well, we'll see, right? I think, <laughs> but you know what? I think he does if he gets what he needs. <laughs> what does he need, Paul? He needs he needs offensive linemen. <laughs> He's got a running back. They've got receivers. They need somebody to protect him and give the and be able to run block for number twenty six. Um, 
I think that he's got to improve on many areas. Uh, Jerry Shaplinski is the new uh, quarterback coach here. I think he will take a lot from what he was around up in New England with Tom Brady, bring some of those things to uh, Daniel Jones as far as preparation goes, as far as things that he does at practice, and be able to eliminate some of the mistakes that he made last year as a rookie. I know that he's a rookie, and you're going to make those mistakes. But, yes, I do, as long as he can learn to protect the football. That's a big thing for Daniel Jones. I would add this, Jeff. I don't think Daniel Jones is missing any component that is necessary to succeed. Well, I, I certainly don't think that he is a guy that has the strongest arm in the world, but to me he doesn't have the weakest arm in the world. So, yes, I'll agree with you there. Certainly went to he went to Duke. You know, he's a smart football player. Um, he was a starter for many years, so he's picked that up. He got a lot of experience last year. Um, I think that he learned – how to take command of the huddle. I think players appreciate that, um, which is very important. And I also believe that he's able to, uh, a guy that can absorb learning, new learning, like new coaches coming in this year, right? They're going to have a new system. That's going to be a tough one for him that probably because of the shortness of what's going on in the world, a guy like Daniel Jones will be able to help you because he's a very cerebral guy and he'll be able to pick up things a lot better. But, yes, I agree with you totally. All right, number three from Steve. So what would you guess the Giants do to address their pass rush and offensive line? Is there any chance that left tackle Nate Solder would be released, and what would that do to the cap? Well, let me just take that second part first. I was going to say, why don't you take this one, Paul? Yeah, first of all, I don't believe Nate Solder is going to be released. Let me just say that, although Dave Gettleman did say the other day, quite frankly, that Nate Solder had a down year. There's no question about that. Uh, it would be extremely expensive against their cap to make a move with him. So uh, in addition to his leadership skills and the intangibles that he brings, he's been hurt for much of his two years with the Giants, and it has impacted his play. I think the Giants are very hopeful that he'll be able to get through a healthy 2020 season, thereby giving them more production at the position. And as far as pass rush and offensive line, I think if they could get quality guys in the first three rounds of the draft, they would like to address those areas. Sure. I think that those are guys. And, and again, we don't know how where, man, would we love to know where all these guys are ranked on the Giants board. And are there any pass rushers up there? Um, are they all offensive linemen? Is there a receiver up there? I don't know. But the fact is, is that I, I still believe that this is a team that is still building for the future, and therefore you build through the draft, and you draft the best players available, in my opinion, not out of need, that are going to help you down the line. Paul, you and I talked about this, and we know it's true, that the, the real work involving in the draft is not the first two rounds. I mean, that's, that's the easy stuff, right? The, the tough sledding goes from third down to seventh, where you got to find you some good guys, Darius Slayton, right, Conley, mm-hmm. guys like that that you feel good about drafting, and then they come back and they make you look good. Now, one of them didn't stay healthy, but he sure was starting to look like a real football player that's going to help this team, and hopefully you know, Conley can get back and get into that playing shape that he did last year. But those, that's where the tough sledding comes. And that's where you hope, guys, that Dave Gettleman and his staff can find some really quality, good football players in those later rounds. Well, we have one week to go, and we will find out exactly what the Giants plan to do when they finally get on the clock uh, come Thursday night. Final question comes from me, Jeff. We talked uh, a couple of times during this program about how you had not watched the Super Bowl, uh, number 42 Mm -hmm. in Arizona. You finally got a chance to watch it on Fox last weekend. I know you and uh, John Schmelk have discussed it. But how many of your other teammates have you been in touch with over the last week who have reminisced with you about that game? And, And is it common that most of them had not watched it until Fox replayed it? Well, I had a chance to, after the game was over, um, just watching it after the game and even during the game, realized, you know, two of the guys that were instrumental to winning that football game on offense was Eli and on defense was Michael Strahan. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I reached out to both those guys and, and Eli had seen it before, but you know what? Strahan had not. And that was incredible to me. Um, I think he had a lot, a lot going on in the last 10 years. <laughs> So it doesn't really surprise me that much, I guess. But the fact is that just the, that he was able to watch it the same time that I was watching it was kind of fun. 
because, um, you know, I, Michael and I had a great relationship. We really did because we were the two older guys in the team. We were both talking about retirement always. Um, and, you know, we kind of we, we dabbled with a little bit of that back and forth, like, hey, when do you think it's time and this and that. And we always talked about it. Obviously, he knew what time it was. <laughs> Once he won the Super Bowl, he was out because I think he had a couple things lined up afterwards. Um, and so, but I, you know, and then all of a sudden I was watch, I was reading Twitter. Sean O'Hara was another guy that had not watched the Super Bowl replay. Um, mm-hmm. from, I mean, he might have watched it, uh, on tape, but he had not seen it, the broadcast, and I had not either. Um, so interesting. But one thing that I did get out of this, this whole, this whole watching it again, Paul, was that what a football team, how much great camaraderie we had, and the common goal, um, you know, Coach Coughlin just kept us on that path, and really the the goal in that game, we executed it. We were the better team on that field that day. We may not have won that game if we played it ten times, but we only had to play it once, and we did, and we attacked what we needed to do, and we won that football game. And I'll tell you what, you know, things go your way. Um, you know, bounces go your way. There was some, there was a fumble by Bradshaw that today in today's game, that probably wouldn't have been our ball or the Giants ball at the point. They would have been re- overturned because the guy had it in his hands and he was down. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some other plays in there. The guys just made plays. And Paul, what do we talk about all the time? What do you got to do to win football games uh, outside the X's and the O's? You got to make plays. That's what we did. We made plays. I mean, Webby knocking the ball down. Webby doing this. I mean, there was tons of things that we, every individual on that team, and by the way, all those rookies. That was another thing that I picked up on that game. Like, my God, did those guys contribute. How great was that? The most productive rookie class in its first year that no I think question. the Giants have ever had. Absolutely. And I will say this, Jeff. I've watched the game about 10 to time, maybe a dozen times in mm-hmm. full over the years because it's just such a classic to me. Now that you've seen it once on replay, do you suspect that sometime in the next 10 years you'll pop it in again? Maybe. Maybe. I, I, I kind of like to just let it just kind of let it sit there. You know, and I can kind of reflect back on it and remember as much as I can. But, um, you know, it's funny because John was asking me, do I remember what I talked to? to, I said to um, Mrs. Mara and Mrs. Tish on the the podium afterwards. I don't remember. I must have just said congratulations, you know, this and that. But I don't remember. I don't even remember talking to him other than when I saw it on TV the other day. I bet there's something else you don't remember. Talking to me on the field. You were in tears with your wife on the field with the confetti. I don't remember that either, but (laughs) listen, uh, there couldn't have been a better moment in my professional career um, to have my wife and kids there on the field who had been with me the whole time, the whole time, my whole career. My wife and I have been married over 30 years. She's been with me every single moment of the way. And for her to be there and, and the kids, you know, we were talking. They were all watching it together the other night. The whole family's in there. And we were. I kept going around. To, hey, Zach, who's the youngest now, um, he, you know, he's 20. But back then he was, you know, just a baby almost. And it was like, hey, do you remember that, Zach? What were you doing? And my wife would be, well, I remember what he was doing. He wasn't paying attention to the game. He was going up and down the stairs. He was constantly wanting food, you know. <laughs> so it was just a lot of fun reminiscing about that whole thing. Great stuff. Uh, love thank going you, through Paul. the memories, and uh, thank you so much for sharing with us, Jeff. Sure. And Anytime. Once again, he is at Jay Fiegels. I am at Giants WFAN, or you can always hit us up uh, through Twitter at hashtag Giants Chat. That'll do it for today's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll see you again next time.